Hello and welcome to the latest episode of Heads Talk with me, Elaine Pringle-Schwitter, the podcast where we talk to C-level executives, leaders and heads of multinationals. What are the current topics? They talk, we listen. My guest today is a heavyweight in the field of medicine and life sciences. She currently works with the global health and life sciences practice and has an interest in clinical leadership, clinical pathway redesign and medical workforce optimal productivity. But before we get into that, here's a message from our sponsors. episode is sponsored by KPMG Life Sciences. Life Sciences is at a crossroads. Healthcare systems globally are evolving to deliver better patient outcomes at lower cost. But aging population and increased expectations are placing unprecedented pressure on service providers. The desire of healthcare systems to pay for outcomes rather than units or episodes of care creates new challenges. How can Life Sciences organisations transform their approach from traditional supplier to solution providers through partnerships with key stakeholders? How can they deliver sustainable, long-term value and drive superior returns for shareholders? At KPMG, we can provide an end-to-end solution. We have deep sector expertise across life sciences and healthcare and a global reach. Harnessing the power of data and technology, strategic and operational experience, and our clinical and scientific specialists, we can enhance your competitive advantage. Let's talk podcast with your host, Elaine Pringle-Schwitter. Professor Hilary Thomas is the Chief Medical Advisor of KPMG and a member of the Global Centre of Excellence in Healthcare and Life Sciences. Prior to KPMG, she spent 23 years in the NHS, including as a Professor of Oncology at the University of Surrey, as well as a Medical Director of the Royal Surrey County Hospital. Hilary works at the interface of healthcare and life sciences for public and private sector clients. Her role includes redesigning care models and pathways, and helping organisations to navigate the changing way that the public interact, and the implications for organisational strategy and business models. She's a past winner of the first Women in Business and a 2015 luminary of the Healthcare Business Women's Association. Hilary has a medical science degree from the University of Cambridge, a PhD from UCL, and an MBBS from the University of London. She was the vice chairman of the Imperial Health Charity, and her publications include the Future of Oncology, a focused approach to winning in 2030, how pharmaceutical players can adopt business models in response to changing oncology markets. So without further ado, I'd like to welcome Hilary to Head's Talk. Hello, Hilary, and many thanks for being with us today. Thank you, Elaine. Good to be here. Um, what a time to be a Chief Medical Officer or a Chief Medical Advisor. Mm. <laughs> well, what a, what a time for anybody, really, I think, um, given yes. what we're going through. I was reflecting on this with a friend yesterday who I was uh, catching up with in a park, socially distanced, yes. um, and, and talking about the impact on children. It must be a little bit like going through the Second World War. Mm. Mm. Yes, I hope it's not as prolonged, but it must be as, uh, as strange in very many ways. Indeed, and we'll touch upon the effects of that um, later in this discussion. So, okay, um, you've got a solid background in medicine and life sciences and has been described as a strategic planner having very strong and consultative and analytical skills real grit with first-class decision-making traits that is what's needed in this period so i'm very very happy to be talking with you today and look forward to your insights on the, the various issues so um let's work backwards with this episode um we'll talk about post-covid 19 first and then perhaps touch upon our current state um, your role is currently front and centre. This, I'm sure, will continue going forward, largely with governmental guidance and intervention. How do you see the workplace handbook and 
working practices in relation to health and medical safety? What are the changes you definitely know and will see? What do you suspect that will yet to be announced forever change? What new normal ways of working do you see going forward? For example, what will the new open plan offices look like? And will, uh, for instance, a behavioural framework be drafted? Please just give my audience your thoughts on this. So I think the new reality or the new normal, as we might call it, of going back to work is mm -hmm. going to be here for good. Uh, I don't think we will spend as much time in the office. I don't think five days a week from nine till five sitting in great proximity and moving around the office and all queuing for lunch will be feasible. So I think we'll probably go back to work one or two days a week perhaps. We'll go in staggered times so that we don't have crowded uh, tube trains. Uh, more people will walk, more people will cycle, and we won't expect people all to go for lunch at the same time. We'll probably have to have some social distancing in the offices. We may work in open plan offices, but we may have to think about that and think about more containment. And I suspect we won't have hot desking in the way we have before, because you can't not know who sat at the desk a few hours before you or who might sit there a few hours later if you're going to attempt some kind of contact tracing. Mm -hmm. And I think this is going to be with us for probably two or three years, uh, even if we are able to, to find an effective vaccine. And I also think it won't be another century before we have another pandemic. So sadly, we're going to have to change our ways of living, even just giving people a hug, shaking hands. We know Japan has had a relatively uh, good outcome and, and, and so far for the first wave has done very well. And while there are many factors that influence that, one of them is probably that they don't shake hands. And uh, sadly, I think for, for many of us, those aspects of our lives will change. So I think, I think you provide a very good example of what the new normal will be. We all talk about new normal. And I just think just visualising what you've just described gives us a sense of what we're talking about when we say new normal. I'm based in Zurich. I'm based in Switzerland, Zurich. And a normal way to greet people, it's not just the shaking of the hands. It's sort of three kisses on the side yes. of the and that will no longer happen. And that is so part of the culture in Switzerland. So it's going to be a very strange time going forward. Okay, let's move on to the next question. Let's talk about digitalization. It has come in waves. MIT initiative on the digital economy, IDE, suggests that wave four, because we are currently in wave three, will involve professional services, education, government, medicine, and hospitals. There will be a major digital disruption in hospitals. Um, what have you seen in this space that you believe will be of great benefit for health organisation and in turn the public? I know of um, research and um, behind the scenes work in, in the robotics and the automation area where, for instance, diagnosis would be fully automated, employing the use of AI and in turn increasing the percentage accuracy rate. I've even heard yesterday that remote surgery will be introduced with the use of AI again and other digital enablers where surgeons at the opposite end of the globe will effectively work together. What are your thoughts on this and are there any examples you'd like to share with my audience? What slow, manual even medical processes do you envisage will benefit from this fourth wave? So you mentioned the, the robots and the ability to conduct surgery remotely, um, but actually that's been around for quite some time. When I was medical director of the Royal Surrey, we were one of the first two places in the country that had a da Vinci robot where you can quite literally conduct the operation on somebody 
through the robot, uh, but it's actually they might be in Mumbai and you're in Guildford. Mm -hmm. uh, and that is being, was being used at that stage as a teaching technique, but is now much more widespread and much more uh, widely used, particularly uh, in um, keyhole surgery. There are lots of other examples. You've also mentioned the use of AI for reading uh, scans and uh, x-rays. And we know that by analysing data in that way, we are able to get far more insights than we can simply by having humans read them. But of course, the economic impact of the pandemic means that actually people will still need employment. And so I think we're going to have to think about how we employ people because they will be needed for oversight of the ways in which we're using automation and robots. Uh, we might need them to be more sophisticated but I think we will move away from many of the slow manual processes. And perhaps we'll also get used to not working the same number of hours that we work at the moment. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I, I think there's some comfort that you mentioned human intervention will still be needed. It's some comfort to hear that you say that it's, everything will be purely automated. Um, I'd, I'd like to move on to the, the next question. And I, I'll premise this by saying, I know this is not your area of specialization, but I would really appreciate your opinion on the following topic. It was a mental health awareness week last week, and it occurred to me to look at what organizations will be facing once the lockdown eases and the adjustments individuals must make. Do you think there is a ticking time bomb on the mental health of the workforce that's currently in lockdown? What potentially awaits us all? How will the state cope with such an increase for help and assistance with mental health issues and problems? Is this something that we should be preparing ourselves for? And also, as a side, I suspect, and you've, you've mentioned it um, briefly in, in the answer to the previous question, I suspect that this may affect the economy at a greater rate than envisage. What are your thoughts on this, Elie? So I think the truth is all of us are having our mental health impacted by COVID um, because nothing is the same. You know, the ability to go out for dinner, the ability to hug your children, mm. uh, the ability to see your elderly relatives. I personally have a mother with dementia who I haven't seen for two and a half months now, and she doesn't understand why. Uh, so it's very difficult, I think, and there is pressure on all of us. And then in addition to that, you know, not knowing when you might have your next holiday in the, what you would have expected a holiday to be, or you know, what will the economic impact be for you, uh, creates huge uncertainty that we're all having to live with. And I think undoubtedly there will be a mental health cost to that. But on a positive note, it was Mental Health Awareness Week last week, and we are talking about it in a way that previous generations didn't. So I think yes. being able to admit that you're finding it difficult, being able to show your vulnerability and having places to talk about it is very important. I certainly know my employer is taking that very seriously and we are checking in with people and we are trying to watch out for people who we think are particularly vulnerable, perhaps young people who live on their own mm -hmm. or young people who live with other young people, but it's more difficult for them uh, because they, they found themselves locked down with people that perhaps weren't as close as family members. Uh, but I do think we are going to have to be very sensitive to it. And then, of course, the economic impact mm. is particularly hard on millennials who are already impacted in many other ways. So I think there is a sense that that generation are being dealt a particularly tough blow. 
And then there, of course, there are children of school age. What is the impact on them? You know, how will they feel being the generation that perhaps didn't take their GCSEs or didn't take their A-levels? Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and what will that mean for them educationally? And so I think we are all going to have to be much more sensitive uh, to the impact of mental health and actually give ourselves and each other more space for that. And I think be much more aware of it. I think mental health has been underinvested in for many years as a clinical area. I think mm-hmm. all healthcare systems would acknowledge that. And perhaps one of the positive things that can come out of this is greater investment in that area. Do you think corporations, do you think corporations should be doing more and probably once the lockdown eases, do you think there's something that they should put in place for when their staff come back into work? What, what are your thoughts on that? Is there something more that they should be doing that you think they're currently not doing or haven't been doing or something new so, that you need to try? So I think what is happening is people are doing more what, what you might call pulse surveys. They're, doing, they're, they're checking in online with people and asking yeah. them to take surveys so that I think they're therefore monitoring health. And certainly in the surveys that I've been taking part in, I'm being asked about my mental health. I'm being asked, you know, how do I feel about the current situation? Um, you know, what, what, what is my kind of psychological position, if you like? Mm-hmm. So I think there are opportunities for organisations to take a temperature check, even if people aren't back in the office yet. And then if they need it, and we have a very, very active mental health network uh, within KPMG in the UK, that is reaching out to people and there are resources and people and support there and we've had various guises in which we've had support networks pop up and i'm sure other organizations are doing the same thing so i think we just need to be sensitive to it and i don't think we can afford to wait until people necessarily go back into the office because if you don't have to be in an office then the likelihood is your employer isn't going to expect you to be back and i think even if the government says we can relax things. Many people are still sufficiently apprehensive, particularly where they have vulnerable people at home with them, or there are risks that they might transmit this to vulnerable people that they won't want to resume normal working arrangements for some time. I'd like to move on. Um, let's have a look at Brexit. <laughs> um, yes, the forgotten subject during this COVID pandemic. Um, let's talk about a scenario, um, a hard Brexit scenario. In your opinion, what would be the effect of such a Brexit on future responses to a pandemic like COVID-19? So we've actually tested this question with many of our clients. uh, And I think one of the realities is that because we we have lived for some time with the possibility of a hard Brexit, people are probably better uh, prepared and uh, and met much of the preparedness that they had to uh, make for a hard Brexit also sits with, with being prepared for a pandemic. So I think in, in terms of uh, financial resilience, supply chain resilience, etc., many organisations have already done that. And I think many organisations are now factoring in a hard Brexit because it looks, it looks hard to see how we might avoid one. Uh, Clearly, this is a sort of, I mean, we're, we're, we're at least seven months before. Yes, but, but I think clearly uh, anticipating this is quite difficult. Um, if we get to the end of June, 
without an agreement, then I guess we have six months to prepare for a hard Brexit. But it's difficult to see how that will help the current situation uh, because I think it's a time where actually working more effectively globally mm -hmm. is quite important. And perhaps a, a delay would be beneficial? There, I think there's been recent talk about that. Well, certainly Michel Barnier appears to have offered a delay, um, but our current position seems to be that we don't want one. But, you know, again, we may be playing some brinkmanship here. I think it's very difficult to know. I think when we all voted back in 2016, I don't think many people imagined that we would still be here in the middle of 2020. Yeah. Um, and the prospect of still being here in 2022 um, kind of ra rather suggests that uh, this was a much more difficult thing to do than anybody anticipated. Indeed, indeed. Um, so wh why do you think the UK has somewhat lagged behind other European countries in terms of combating this virus and keeping casualty numbers down. The UK has nearly five times the casualty of Germany, 38,000 deaths to Germany's 8,000. What did we not see or underestimated? So I think, as many people have said, it's very difficult making international comparisons. And I suppose given my background as an oncologist, mm -hmm. I've been very aware for many years that our outcomes in cancer have always appeared worse than Europe. And one of the reasons for that is actually we have extremely good data in the UK. We have very good registries. We have pretty comprehensive data because we have this unique identifier in the NHS number. Mm -hmm. And so actually it may be that we are particularly accurate in, in registering causes of deaths. Um, mm -hmm. Another country that's done rather badly apparently is Belgium. But in Belgium they have taken every single death that could possibly have been COVID and described it as a COVID death. Right wasn't done um, and actually if you look in terms of the death rate by population we're much closer obviously to Italy and Spain than to Germany and I think it's very complex um, I think you could easily say we were too slow in knocking down but that is with the benefit of hindsight I have friends in public health who at the time felt that this was very difficult to judge because the earlier we locked down the earlier people would become frustrated and bored and and find it very difficult but with hindsight it's clear that the earlier you lock down the greater the chance that you can then relax things earlier and after a short period even germans are sort of perplexed as to how they've done so well um, and why the german system has done so well they have a fantastic rich diagnostics industry which has undoubtedly helped them they were therefore able to test earlier than we were they were better prepared with ppe and they have a much higher number of intensive or critical care beds per head of population than the UK. So they were not at risk of the same surge. You know, I was involved very happily in the work of the, um, the Nightingale Hospital Expansion Scheme. Mm -hmm. And in that process, it was really um, you know, eye-opening how quickly we managed to ramp up those facilities and create that critical care capacity. And happily, we haven't needed anything like the capacity we were creating um, but I think the difficulty is um, that the UK you know the truth is we were we were slower to lock down we didn't have the testing capacity available as rapidly as we had hoped uh, we weren't as well prepared on PPE 
Um, and also, I think as the disease evolved, we started to learn more about it and we had different rate limiting steps. You know, at some points, the emergency capacity in the NHS was limited by the availability of anaesthetic. Mm. And nobody, nobody could have anticipated that until we saw how the disease itself played out. Mm. Um, but there is no doubt that, you know, countries like New Zealand, Germany, uh, Korea and others have done very well, relatively speaking. Um, but even, you know, some of the success in Japan is thought to be the fact that they have one of the slimmest populations in the world. And so actually the correlation between have, obesity... They do have one of the eldest um, populations. They do, they so do. So it's still surprising. I think they probably um, perhaps did a better job of, um, you know, isolating um, care homes. My, my mother is in a care home which has fared relatively well and mm -hmm. they took their own decision to lock down before the government did. Uh, we, we were not allowed to visit her a week ahead of lockdown. Um, and they have also, you know, randomly tested everybody in the past week and interestingly identified some asymptomatic cases in people in their 80s. Mm. Uh, so now that we have more testing capacity, I think we will also see slightly different patterns. So, so uh, I think some of what I'm getting from you is that um, our timings were wrong, because, well, in hindsight, uh, our times were wrong. And I, I know that in Switzerland, the lockdown happened a lot sooner than the UK. And even now the children have gone back to school, albeit part-time. And um, there's talk in the UK of the children going back to school in June. So it's all about um, timing and the speed at which you do things. So I, I wanna move on to a question around that in terms of timings and, and returning back to work. Um, there are many factors that play into enabling people to return to work. One of them will be, as I mentioned, the speed at which individuals can be tested for the virus and the antibodies. In the UK alone, I think Matt Hancock had a, an ambitious target of 100,000 COVID-19 tests per day. So speed is of the essence. The organisation has been at the forefront with helping labs restructure their operations to ensure that they are fit to provide for widespread COVID-19 testing not just for hospitals, but also for government agencies and private organisations. Can you tell my audience a bit more about this? What is your organisation doing in this space? So one of the things that organisations like mine bring is the sort of drumbeat of uh, process and really how to manage uh, large scale programmes. And we supported both the Nightingale hospitals and the diagnostics uh, approach, as, as have uh, a number of uh, similar organisations so that we could get that kind of scale and speed, the understanding of supply chains at a level of detail, you know, underpinning that with data and analytics so that you have systems and processes that are robust and trackable uh, so that you can really start to scale up. But globally, there was a sort of limitation in how quickly the testing could be scaled. I had conversations with colleagues in Canada and colleagues all over the world and some of this was simply shortages of certain items. I understand there are particular types of magnetic beads that were used in the PCR testing that were just, you know, at a shortage globally. Mm -hmm. uh, and so even, even countries that were further ahead struggled to get to the number of tests that they wanted to have. And I, I was thinking that perhaps we will provide, if, if you're okay with that, a link to the KPMG's diagnostics, the ramp up and testing of COVID-19 and beyond. So yeah, that'd be fine, yeah. 
yeah. people can read more about that. Um, okay, let's move on. Um, there is talk of uh, a genuine fear of a potential second wave of this virus later in this year. This is a big question to you. What is the likelihood and how better do you think we will be at handling this second wave? In public health, uh, they feel that a second wave is inevitable. Uh, I think the only question is when and how large, uh, you know, how widespread. Will it be second waves in small pockets around the country where we can then localize the response? Will it be a second wave across the country as we saw with the first wave that will start in some places and then recede and move to other places? Perhaps we will be better at, at responding and faster because we're much more aware of the R number now. We're watching the data more closely and we're learning more about the management of the disease as well as time goes on. Mm -hmm. So perhaps we'll be able to contain it more effectively. But certainly talking to people with expertise in public health, it's not a question of whether, it is a question of when. Um, the further out we can push the second wave, probably the milder the economic impacts, because I think if we all find ourselves in July and August having to uh, go back into some kind of lockdown, mm -hmm. it will mean that many businesses will not have had a chance to recover. Uh, and, and, and confidence will be lost and, and along with that a lot of jobs so let's hope that as and when a second wave does come it comes in a small way that can be limited and that is far enough out that mm -hmm. uh, it, it means there has been some economic uh, revival. Mm -hmm. I do hope there's some lessons learned because as history suggests within the 1918 Spanish flu the second wave was much deadlier than the first, and I hope that will ha not happen with COVID-19 here. Mm. I think advances in medicine and our knowledge of disease and uh, sort of our ability to limit some of this um, will mean it, it shouldn't be as deadly. We, you know, we, we, have, we have drugs now that we know will mitigate the disease course, even if we don't yet have a vaccine. Even if it's a different strain? Well, I, th I think even if it's a different strain, we will have learned so much from this time round um, that we should still be able to, to limit it. Um, the, my understanding of the science is that um, if, even if it's a different strain, it probably isn't going to be uh, more lethal than this one. Or if it is, then I think the response is going to have to be extreme. But uh, I, I'm, I'm trying to be optimistic about this one. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I'm glad you said optimistic because I'd, I'd like to uh, end my final, my final question on a sort of a positive note, I hope. Um, have you got any personal positives or silver linings from this outbreak that would like to share with my audience? Um, how optimistic, you've mentioned it, are you um, hopeful, even pessimistic? Um, please tell us, how, how are you feeling? Well, well, one of the things that I think has been quite extraordinary is the extent to which people have actually responded. You know, I think people have talked about countries like Spain and Italy, where, you know, families of different generations all live together. It, it, the, the disease has probably been able to exploit that, should we say. Mm -hmm. um, and, and that's been very sad, I think, for, for those countries. But equally, across the world people have responded um, to political direction in some cases or to common sense and their own choices in others in a way that has protected their fellow human beings and i think that's that's a, a real positive um, even the eight o'clock clapping which i first witnessed when i was on my way home from the work i was doing at the nightingale 
has been really uh, quite overwhelming and I certainly have participated in it and always feel choked when it mm -hmm. happens. Mm -hmm. So the appreciation and the rainbows in people's front windows that you see all over London mm -hmm. uh, is, is heartwarming. Mm. I think yeah. there's another positive for me. Um, you know, it's been quite well publicised that countries, particular countries who happen to have female leaders, also seem to have done rather well. And I actually think that there's a case for a more empathic, open communication as part of democracies going forward. And I do think that the way that Jacinda Ardern talks about a team of five million people when she talks about New Zealand, mm. or the way that Angela Merkel was describing the science in a way that was completely uh, plausible and interpretable for the German public, uh, and, and her sort of approval ratings as a result of that has been quite exciting. And so actually for me, one of the positives would be that people start to understand the importance of diversity mm -hmm. and, and that there are different ways to communicate and different ways to behave and that being more compassionate and empathic and understanding of other people, and that also plays to the mental health point, could well be an outcome at this time. Yeah, yeah, I thought it was a powerful statement. I, I think I've seen one of those um, posts where they showed all the female leaders that were doing a lot better in terms of the country was doing a lot better with the handling of COVID-19. And I just thought that was an amazing, powerful statement in terms of more female leaders um, on, on the stage, of, on the global stage. And I thought that was just amazing. And mm. you know, probably wouldn't have seen that if it wasn't for COVID-19. So that was probably one of the, the, the positives that's come out of it. Um, I mean, I think it was in Forbes, wasn't it? I can't remember yes. the name of the author. Yeah. She had seven million views in two weeks. <laughs> that's, mm. that. that's amazing. That's something we need to stick on the walls and to show our children, especially on, mm. on the, the possibilities and what we're doing. And I like the fact that you said some of the softer skills that these leaders tend to have have actually helped with this um, COVID-19 situation and it wasn't needed. You talk about the empathic, the open, the, the communicative, that sort of stuff, speaking the language of the average person. So, you know, that's something that we all will go forward and look at in terms of leadership roles. That, that's something, you know, we, we can mm. carry forward and people yeah, will shun it and say, well, call it a, in quotes, female trait, but actually we'll say it's a trait that is needed to get certain messages across. Yeah, yeah. And there, I mean, there are you know, plenty of men with well-developed female sides. Mm -hmm. um, we just need to celebrate them more. I mean, one of the things that I found quite offensive early on, actually, was this sort of warlike, pugilistic language about COVID-19. And I say that as an oncologist, because I know that many people who have had cancer or have lost loved ones to cancer mm -hmm. hate this idea that, you know, he lost the fight or my battle with cancer, because actually it isn't a person or a country. It isn't a war. You know, it's a virus. It doesn't think. Yes. And so actually, you know, pitting ourselves against it as though it's mm -hmm. some sort of enemy is unhelpful. Actually, what we need to do is understand it and work out what our strategy is mm -hmm. and, you know, stay together. But it isn't coming out of the sky with a bomb. Yeah, um, yeah. And, and so actually, I don't think wartime language was particularly helpful because it isn't very illuminating for people. And yeah. so uh, I, I thought it was interesting when it then started to emerge that this more empathic, compassionate uh, approach, bringing people with 
and and really sort of helping to educate them mm -hmm. was proving to be more successful. I, I, I do hope that continues. I, I do hope that language continues mm. in, in the right places. Hilary Thomas, many thanks for your time and insight. Thank you, Elaine. Thanks for joining me today on this episode of Heads Talk. Don't forget to subscribe to the show via my website, elainepringle.com forward slash Heads Talk, or wherever you get your podcasts. Finally, I'd like to thank our sponsors, guests, and you for helping to make the show possible. Please join me next time where I'll be featuring more executive decision makers and heads of multinationals. Heads Talk podcast with your host, Elaine Pringle-Schwitter.